I'm Jimmy Spithill, and you're listening to Into the Dips. If you know sailing, you know Jimmy Spithill. Two-time America's Cup winner and a renowned leader who delivered one of the greatest comebacks in team sports. Now, Jimmy's fighting it out to become champion of sailing's most prestigious league, SailGP. I've never in my career seen the best in the world having the same equipment. They literally fly above the water. As we visit iconic cities all over the world, we meet some pretty cool and inspiring people. From sporting legends to scientific adventurers and genuine trailblazers of equality. We've got it all. So every SailGP event, I get to know one of them a little bit better. And I hope you will too. I'm John O'Turner and you're listening to Into the Depths. All right, well, thanks for joining us, Jimmy. Uh, very exciting times. We're back in Bermuda, uh, about to start season three of SailGP. Uh, we've got a very cool venue for this podcast, the National Museum of Bermuda, with an iconic uh, Bermudan sailboat in the background. You've got your own Bermudan story as well. Uh, you've got experience here, uh, and you're a bit of the kind of hometown hero, I think, around, around town. Everyone's asking about Jimmy and the <laughs> USA team. So how good is it to be back, and what's your experience of being in Bermuda? It's awesome to be back. Yeah, we came here after the San Francisco America's Cup and decided to host the America's Cup in Bermuda. And I think for a lot of people, they were like, well, where is it? They kind of thought it was down near the Bahamas. But once everyone got here and just saw how beautiful it was, but more importantly, the people, just how into it they were and welcoming, it's just an amazing place to live. And at the end of the campaign, you know, when everyone left, it was actually quite difficult to leave because everyone really got attached and, and used to the lifestyle that it provides, which is a real get-out-on-the-water lifestyle. And naturally, being in the game that we're all in and our families, it was, yeah, one of the best campaigns, I think. And if we focus on present day, you know, we're back here for SailGP. Uh, you know, we're about to start season three. Super exciting, two new teams, more venues. Uh, more sailors it's uh it's, it, can you describe season two i know it was your kind of first first season in in sail gp it was a massive season uh and uh, you know a, a real unforgettable competition as well i think yeah season two really had everything i mean it had a new influx of teams and the best sailors in the world that was pretty obvious but really i think when you saw the level of racing and just how hard everyone was pushing Man, a lot of crashes, a lot of collisions, capsize, uh, broken bones. I mean, it really had it all. But at the end of the day, what it really showed was some um, insane racing and people really pushing. So for us, it, we had a bit of everything. You know, we had some crashes, broken bones. and But at the end of the day, we were able to qualify for the grand final, which I thought was a great statement as a new team. The two other teams that got in there were the Japanese and the Australians. They were the two that were in the final in season one and clearly they were a bit of a benchmark ahead. But yeah, look, it was an awesome season and I think now rolling into season three, we've got 10 teams. Man, it is going to be full on. And you guys were, the USA team was quite, uh, very consistent last year, consistently unlucky at the beginning, I guess. And then, but you, you consistently got those podium spots as well that kind of quietly kept you up there uh, without actually winning uh, a sail grand prix um but what is it do you think that takes you from second to first in a competition like this is it kind of a is there a science to it is it leadership or is it just a bit of luck and the way the cards fall well in my mind it's definitely not luck 
it definitely comes down to really putting the the hours in, um, making the correct decisions, and really trying to essentially outlearn the other teams. I mean, what's really unique about SailGP is everyone's got the exact same equipment. Now, the boats do get upgraded, and there is a design component to SailGP. However, when those upgrades come into the fleet, everyone gets them at the same time. Not only that, but the data is completely open. So you imagine being a Formula One team, and you could see everyone's data, all your competitors, all the camera angles, the microphones. Uh, you can see every single setting uh, from past events. You can see it live in the water, so the coaches can be looking live, seeing what's happening on your boat and seeing what's happening on a competitor's. In between the race, come up and say, hey, this is what these guys are doing and this is what you're doing. Never before has that been done in the sport. So what that really produces is for any new team to come in, and let's face it, we were a new team in season two, it gets you up to speed straight away. You know, you don't have to go through this long, you know, potentially years to try and get to that point of being able to go out there and compete. Now, any new team, I mean, literally months before they come into the competition can be reviewing all the data, all the footage, listening to the comms, and that puts them in good standing. So, yeah, look, that is a big part, but still... Doing all those little things right can add up and make a big difference. And I think that's what we saw in season two with the Australian team. And, you know, you're a, you're a, a winner uh, at heart. It's in your DNA. How does it feel to see, I know he's your mate, but how does it feel to see Slingers, Tom Slingsby's name on the trophy two seasons running? Well, first of all, it's, it's impressive, you know, and it's a solid team. I mean, funny enough, I hired all those guys for our America's Cup campaigns in the past so I know them well I've raced with them a lot of times got a lot of respect very very good sailing team uh, Tom's clearly a very very talented sailor and the squad they've put together I mean one of the challenging things in sail GP is getting time on the boat you know th there is nothing that you can train on that is even close to an F50 like Formula One and MotoGP the boats as soon as you finish an event they get packed up they go in containers and they go to the next event. And it's all about trying to get as many events as we can in the season. And what that means is it really is, no one can go out and just out-train someone because the boat's on the ship. And so that's, that's quite a unique thing because I think in the sport of sailing and for a lot of us, even coming from different sports, you, you want to put the training in. You want to put the time in and get all those reps but that's, that's what's kind of unique about this where you can't – typically the format is you get two practice days, Thursday, Friday, and then you get your race weekend, everything packs up, and you're on to the next event. So that, that's something I think why we see, let's say, the Australian and the Japanese team, that those hours that they've got from, let's say, season one and developing the boats probably paid off. And I think it's fair to say that CLGP's – shaking up the sailing world a little bit but do you think it's got what it takes to go mainstream you know to, to go beyond sailing and hit those kind of racing fans or you know other water sports fans i think so i mean look i think there's a couple of reasons why i believe sail gp will grow its audience and become more of let's say a sports fan as opposed to maybe in the past was more of a sailing fan to watch to watch sailing i think one thing is the speed of the boats the tech i mean you just have a look at these things and they look like they're more of a, a spacecraft than a boat. The speeds they're doing, they can do four times the speed of the wind, 60 mile an hour. They literally fly above the water. There's real risk now. 
uh, there's real consequences if you get it wrong. I mean, we've seen all the footage from season two. So we're, we're really dealing with issues that auto racing deal with in terms of the safety side. I think the other thing that, that really appeals to, uh, let's say, non-sailors and sports fans is the ability to understand what's going on. So it's been simplified. We have an awesome TV product and the cameras on board, we're mic'd live. So there's the ability there for commentators to educate the audience, okay, here's what's going on. So I think with, with those two ingredients, and now people are looking at the athletes themselves and going, oh, well, these guys look like linebackers, you know, the, the grinders and the guys that sell these things. So it really, to my mind, ticks all the boxes. And if you're into team sport, if you're into the tech side, Man, it is. And look, at the end of the day, the numbers will do the talking. And if you look at the growth from season one, now getting to the end of season two, it's exceeded all of the targets and goals. So I think it's in a great spot. And it's the first time we've had a seasonal racing competition happening. A lot of the premier events in the sport used to be every three or four years. Mm -hmm. And even then, a lot of the time, you weren't really sure where that next event was going to have. Mm -hmm. Now we're like a lot of the mainstream sports, you know, whether it be football, whether it be basketball, baseball, they have regular seasons so people can plan for it. And it's a franchise-based model like other sporting teams. So you can build value. Uh, you can have your roster. It's a lot more engaging. And I think now it really has the opportunity in season three to go to another level. I know you're big into psychology. You know, we talked about other sports and maybe some of the similarities, but you know, you've been part of some incredible winning teams in your career. Is the psychology of a winning team the same across sports disciplines, do you think? I think so. I mean, look, from what I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to play a few different team sports, you know, definitely going through, um, through high school and growing up. And one thing that stood out pretty consistently is that culture and that dynamic between the people. And, you know, we, we, we call it, for lack of a better term, the no dickhead rule, because it only takes one to really kind of mess a team up. And, and so as long as you've got that culture right, no one comes in and it's, it really is all about the team and you're, you're able to put yourself and your ego in second place and kind of yeah. are, keep asking the question, okay, well, what can benefit the team here? You know, what's going to give the team a better chance of winning? And when you have that sort of a culture and that sort of environment, the gains you can make learning um, collectively, and I think also personally, the ability to be really candid and quite brutal with your teammates, but also willing to accept the exact same kind of message and approach, then, man, I mean, the, the heights you can reach are, are, are pretty high. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely been probably the single standout is the people and how they operate together. And, you know, you, you started leading teams very early on, actually, at a very young age. Uh, you've been around a few years now, so I'm sure you've picked up a few things over the years. But I wonder what's maybe the, the most important or most valuable lesson that you think you learned maybe early on or maybe even recently. Uh, and who taught it you? What was the kind of context for that? I think it just happened because I really did get lucky in that I had some, let's say, good coaches in other sports that really put some good morals, as an example. But also, a lot of the time I was the youngest. So I was operating with people that, frankly, were just better than me. Most of the time, actually, they were always better than me. So that forced me to sort of work harder because I had to to try and hang with them. 
but it, it really sort of highlighted a, an important point is to go out and hire the best people you can, you know, and don't be threatened if, um, you know, you, if, if you're in a position in a, in a big group of people and, you know, you, you have to cover every single position, then you, you've, done, you've hired the wrong people. You really want to hire people based on their skills and their talent and then let them go out and, and show that. And if they've got that team environment that that team sort of approach again where they're going to put themselves second then you have the makings of what will be a successful team and more importantly something you really enjoy doing and look forward to waking up every day and, and putting those hours in what do you think is the maybe the harshest lesson you've learned is there a time that, st that stands out when you think oh i was maybe i was the dickhead then <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was no shortage of that when i was younger <laughs> Um, I, look, I think the key thing is that there will be mistakes. I mean, that's an absolute guarantee. And the higher you go in sport, it's, you know, there's, there's very few cases of, let's say, people going through sporting careers and not having a defeat. You know, maybe there's a couple of examples in maybe boxing and UFC with guys like Floyd Mayweather and, and maybe Khabib where they've somehow got through undefeated, which is unbelievable. But in team sport, it is very rare to go continually without some sort of a mistake, some sort of a tough defeat. But the key part I've seen is that's actually the time where you have the most to grow and the most to really learn something. And, and that's where you can really take your lessons and bounce back. And, and it's, the, it's the same old story, you know, like when you're winning and things are going well, not too many personality conflicts, everyone getting along, you know, let the good times roll. When you're facing, you know, the barrel of the gun, or you're facing match point, then you start to see the guys who you want around you and the guys that are going to come and pick you up and not point the finger. And so, again, it's an interesting one when you're in assembling a team because unless you've been with guys in the heat of battle and faced some tough situations or some really bad moments, you don't really know how they're going to react. Um, but that's the beauty of sport. You know, Through time, you get to see that. And I think season two for us really showed that. I mean, we started off in the worst possible way with a huge crash um, a few other incidents following that. But straight away, the team got tested. Okay, how, how are our people going to respond? And it, the ultimate question was, well, this will show, have we hired the right people? And fortunate enough, we had. So, yeah, that's, that, that's probably the, the most important point for me is when things don't go well, how does your team react? I think you very nicely brought us naturally to 2013. Uh, obviously, it would be remiss of me not to ask you about the greatest comeback in sports history uh, as it's uh, very often billed. Uh, you must talk about the comeback uh, in San Francisco a lot. I'm sure you've told that story many times. I think we've just watched some footage of that uh, on this podcast. But how, you know, when, when, you, when you achieve something like that from the, the, you're in the jaws of the beast and you pull it back and, and turn it, you know, does that kind of, def does it define you? As a, as a person as well as a as well as an athlete you know it's such a big achievement it, and it, it you know kind of your reputation precedes you after that point surely yeah i think a, definitely one thing you learn over a career is when the times are good and something's worked really well there's no shortage of people coming up and telling you how great you are and 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 like a lot of things you know i think if you look at the media today if it just keeps being said and put in front of you you may even make the mistake of starting to believe it. And that, that I think definitely younger, that, that can be a real mistake. And, and sometimes, a, you know, I learned a lesson, you know, 
during earlier on in my career about that. So you have to be really careful in something like that. But with the actual comeback in, in San Francisco, what it really highlighted was just how important that team culture was because as soon as you find yourself in a very, very difficult moment with huge amount of money on the line, a lot of people watching, and every day you have to face match point. It's not like you have to face it once, just continually over you know, essentially a couple of weeks. Then you're starting to look around and see, okay, what are my teammates doing? And everyone's just, instead of sort of splitting apart and letting the, the pressure get to them, just sort of almost uh, laughing to a certain point of view, just grabbing one another and just saying, look, let's just, we, you know, we can get through this. But probably the key lesson was not to look too far into the future. I mean, we're all human. So you go home after a race and you're at match point. And of course, you can't help every now and then to let your mind wander and think, oh man, you know, what happens if we lose here? But you've only got so much time and energy. So you may as well spend it thinking about how can I win the next race? You don't have to win all eight the next day. All you have to do is go out and win a race, learn what you can, get prepared for the next day and go out and focus on that. And, and I think that's a pretty important lesson that I took from that campaign in life in that, you know, when that hill looks a little bit too steep to climb and the summit's a long, long way away, don't worry too much about that. Just worry about just one step at a time and working your way up. What, what do you think is the biggest kind of misconception about you as a, as a person? <laughs> I don't know. You'd, you'd have to... No idea. Probably have to ask my wife. Um, <laughs> what do you think the perception is of you then? Um, I, would, I don't know. Difficult to say. I mean, I'm definitely competitive. I love, I love competition. I love sport. I love working in a, in a team environment. Really enjoy that. I don't enjoy probably the politics and sitting still or all of that, but, but I love being in that team environment. I love working at something that's really difficult mm. in a group setting. That, that, that really gets me motivated and I really enjoy waking up early and sort of you know, looking forward to the challenge ahead. And that's, that's why SRGP has been such an awesome opportunity because mm. it really, I've never in my career seen this sort of field of the best in the world having the same equipment. You know, our sport is notorious where there are differences, you know, and it can be an expensive game. Mm. But for the first time now at the very top level, instead of it being an arms race and, a, you know, about, you know, who's got the resource, who doesn't, it comes down to the, the team that can really get it together and go out there and, and make it happen. So that's, that's really, really motivating and, yeah, quite stimulating. Is that what keeps you in the game then, essentially? You know, as, as you kind of get a bit older and a bit more experienced, you've got these young whippersnappers coming through trying to bite your heels as well. Yeah, I mean, it's to see that new energy and that hunger of guys wanting to come in and just do what it takes, it just, like, it refires you up. You know, whether you're in the gym with these guys and you're just trying to hang with them or around the base when you're going through the data, whatever it is. I mean, that new blood coming through, I've found to be just a massive re-motivator for me. And, and also cool to see that the sport is really strong and healthy and the, the next generation to me is way better prepared than the generation of mine at that age. And I guess that's the thing, you know, the sport itself is essentially a moving target as well. It's evolving constantly. And the last 10 years of sailing, it's almost unrecognizable, you know, what, what we see people sailing on and, and wing foiling and, 
you know, it's a whole new side to the sport. So what do you think the future is of, of sailing as a sport? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I, when you talk about being lucky, I mean, that, that's definitely the case for me because you look at the time I've been involved. Mm. I got to get involved when it was back in your sort of standard monohulls, you know, the typical boats you'd see out there racing. And then all of a sudden in around 2010, we just had this massive change, you know, into the huge multi-hulls, hardwing sails. 2013, we went into foiling, really went mainstream. And now here we are on the F50s, just absolutely sending it with 10 teams on a racetrack. So, man, when you, when you look at the sport and the time to be involved, mate, it's better to be lucky than good. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's just so hard to think, well, if you look at the quantum leap that's kind of happened over the last decade, man, what's, what's in store for the next 10? And I've got to ask you predictions for Sail GP this year. You know, season three, it's all on. Uh, I'm sure you're, you're feeling confident, you know, who's going to finish top? Look, I think you can't go past the Aussies who have just won back to back. But when you're at the top, it's tough. I mean, you've got a target on your back. I thought the British team showed a lot of promise as well the last season. They definitely, you know, the, you look at um, their wing trimmer and flight controller did all of season one with Team Japan. So very, very experienced, that nucleus. And Ben's come in and really ratcheted up another level. But that's the great thing about this game is you just don't know. I mean, I don't think anyone would have picked us as a new team to make the grand final last time. I think people were a little bit surprised with the Kiwi team's performance. They thought they would have been in the grand mm -hmm. final. But man, that's, that's what makes this so cool. And I think the fascination and the enjoyment of sport is that you just can't always predict it. You know, there's always a few surprises on the way. And when you've got a fleet of boats like this on this tight of a racetrack with a hammer down, things are going to happen. Just finally, uh, around six, six weeks ago, you were racing in the $1 million grand final of Sail GP. So we've got a million dollar question for you. Um, if you could change one rule in Sail GP, what would it be? Yeah, if I could change one rule in Sail GP, it would be that we wouldn't have to do any green screen photography. <laughs> <laughs> Not a fan of that. No. <laughs> Is it because you don't trust them? They might put you somewhere you don't want to be. On the green screen. I just find it a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe they're just trying to find a good angle for me, but it doesn't exist. <laughs> and that's where we reveal that we've been sitting in front of a green screen the whole time. We're not even in Bermuda. <laughs> that's right. Uh, no, but thanks for your time, Jimmy. It's been great to chat to you. Thank you for joining us on Into the Depths. Thanks very much. And good luck this season. Yeah, cheers. Thank you.